discuss various worldviews and philosophies, both present and throughout the ages, from a biblical perspective. I'm Morne Fushir, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Kurt Norman. How's your week been, Kurt? My week's been good, thanks. Uh, it's the usual, just working, trying to make sure that everything's still running around, uh, running around here. And... Um, yeah, not much more than that. How has your week been? Oh, not doing too bad, but uh, some members of my household uh, got the flu. Um, so, taking care of them. And, yeah, just enjoying time with my family. Uh, trying to get back into routine. I was a little bit ill myself this week, but not as bad as my wife and daughter. Um, so, we are recovering and, yeah, we can't complain. Doing much Good better power. at least, yeah. Now, uh, would you please, uh, before we get into today's episode, uh, would you give us a recap of last week's episode? Sure. So in episode six, the fish on the highway and the thoughts I have for it, we looked at commonly abused Bible verses removed and interpreted out of their context. Yes, just like a fish out of water and ran over on the highway. For example, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and Philippians 4, verse 13, among others. And for our cringeometer, Philippians 4, verse 13, out of context, took the spotlight. There was a cringy hype video in our imaginations with an athlete quoting the verse, competing, falling all over the place, and getting back up again to win but that is not what it's about the first three rules of bible interpretation are context context and again context so put the verses back where they belong read the whole chapter they're in read the previous chapter and the chapter following in fact read the whole book read the whole bible yeah, it's a lot like, you know, instead of running off to find Nemo, just put Nemo with his with his fish friends. <laughs> yes, Nemo <laughs> will do well with the rest of the clownfish. <laughs> so, as we mentioned at the end of the previous episode, um, we are going to talk about alcohol today, and specifically what the Bible says about it, and how a Christian should approach it. We're going to see exactly who is who in the zoo of booze. <laughs> oh, that's, that's funny. Yes. Um, so maybe I should have said not how a Christian should approach it, but maybe even whether a Christian should approach it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, so we quoted some scripture at the end of the previous episode, um, which yeah. specifically address alcohol and wine. And I'm going to add a few others also today. But let's start right. with those of last week. Um, Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, uh, New King James Version reads like that. Um, the NASB replaces the led astray with uh, being intoxicated by, so getting a little bit more, maybe a bit of a more thoughtful thought approach there, which is strange for the NASB, but yeah, it is. regardless, um, uh both readings bring the message across. Now, Proverbs 23, verse 29 to 35, uh, 
which last time I made a mistake, I said Proverbs 29, verse 29 and 35, and you corrected me when you, as we prepared for this episode. Um, it is Proverbs 23, because if you're going to look for verse 29 to 35 in between Proverbs 29, you're going to have a hard time finding those verses. Yeah, there's no manuscript that has that. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they did, there was not some recent discovery in the Dead Sea Scrolls or <laughs> anything <Nope>. like that. <laughs> now, it reads like the following. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has red eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will say perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me. But I did not know it. When will I awake? I will seek another drink. I think wow, that's pretty vivid. I can see the guy lying on the shore with the waves washing over him, and he he's getting up with this massive hangover. <laughs> yeah, that that it's so so descriptive, and uh, that's a beautiful thing about the poetic literature. And, yes, indeed. Uh, which like the pictures they are so nice um and the other one that i also read last time but we'll get to that a little bit later in the new testament is ephesians 5 verse oh, 18 yes. which is do not get drunk with wine in which there is debauchery but be filled with the spirit but before we go to the new testament then further i want you to maybe help us a little bit to gain a better understanding of the words in hebrew here um like what are the words like wine and strong drink referring to are they is there more than one word? Uh, how do we gain a better understanding, Yakut? All right. Well, according to what I found in my Bible search, there are two words that we've dealt with here, uh, yayin and sakar. So from Vine's dictionary, yayin is for wine. And I'm quoting from there. It says, this is the usual Hebrew word for fermented grape. It is usually rendered wine. Such wine was commonly drunk for refreshment, and he gives a reference from Genesis 14, verse 18, with a comparison to 27, verse 5. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. Wine was used in rejoicing before the Lord. Once a year, all Israel is to gather in Jerusalem. The money realized from the sale of a tithe of all their harvest was to be spent for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen or for sheep or for wine or for strong drink or for whatsoever thy soul desireth, and thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice. From Deuteronomy 14 verse 26 in the good old King James Version. Uh, then he continues saying wine was offered to God at his command as part of the prescribed ritual, Exodus 29 verse 40. Thus it was part of the temple supplies available for purchase by pilgrims so that they could offer it to God, reference 1 Chronicles 9 verse 29. 
Pagans used wine in their worship, but their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Deuteronomy 32 verse 33, end quote. So clearly making a distinction there between the way uh, wine was used in Israel and how it was used among the pagans. Okay. Then uh, going to the word uh, sekar, I'm using the Lexham Research Lexicon of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and so this, this is for the word strong drink. It's the word sekar. And uh, in the noun usage of it, it is fermented drink. Any fermented drinks aside from wine. Okay, thanks, Kurt. Now, for the New Testament references, I, along with Ephesians 5.18, I also have, uh, have two others. Um, in the Gospel of John, the first miracle that Jesus performs, and this is a well-known one, uh, is when he turned water into wine at the yes. wedding at Cana. And uh, if you want to go read, I'm not going to read the whole passage, uh, but this can be found in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. And, um, and also another reference that I think, um, and Acts 2.13, and this is at Pentecost, um, yes. right, Kurt, uh, where the Holy Spirit is poured out and the apostles start speaking in tongues. And... Uh, the quote in from Acts 2.13 is, the people saw them and they mocked them and said, that, um, they are full of new wine. Like the verse itself reads, others mocking said, they are full of new wine. And the NASB replaces, comparing now to the New King James Version, and this is a translation difference, not a manuscript difference really. Yeah. It says sweet wine, not yeah. um, new wine. And then Ephesians 5.18, as, well, as I've said, mentioned previously um says and do not get drunk with wine in which there is debauchery but be filled with the spirit um so any insights into the greek words here kurt all right well first of all for the acts 2 verse 13 reference and i'm also quoting from a vines dictionary the word is glucose uh, and that denotes sweet or new wine uh, or something called must. Um, and he, he also gives the reference here from Acts 2 verse 13. And um, he points out where the accusation shows that it was intoxicant and must have been undergoing fermentation at some time. So, yes, there is some level of fermentation that's taken place here, although it's clearly different from... Um, the next word, and this is for the Ephesians 5 verse 18 reference. I'm also using Vine's dictionary here. Um, in the manuscript, it's oino, um, and uh, the, the root is oinos. Okay, so he says oinos is the general word for wine. The mention of the bursting of the wineskins, and he references Matthew 9 17, Mark 2 22, and Luke 5 37. And he says that implies fermentation. Okay. Um, so clearly they do, they have both um, fermented to some point, but they are uh, at different levels of it. Okay, that, that's uh, helpful to understand. So there is two separate words. So um, these are definitely warnings then, but uh, so far I haven't seen any prohibitions and um 
as we saw now, it, it helps as well to do a word study um, as well as a study of the, the history because you get um, people on different sides of the fence that uh, will uh, give their opinion on alcohol. So uh, also just to point out that a, a historical study is secondary and that must not be used to interpret scripture. We look at the words in the context of scripture itself and um, what scripture says about uh, them specifically. Okay. Um, yeah. The uh, yeah, so definite warnings, obviously, and uh, also I agree with you. It doesn't seem to me either that they are uh, prohibitions on drinking alcohol or wine entirely. Considering the culture and the geography of that era, wine would have been the most common alcoholic beverage in yes uh, in ancient Israel and in the, uh, in Galilee and the area and Jerusalem and where Jesus' ministry occurred. And in the time of the apostles as well, I'm sure, considering the Roman, the Greek world as well, the Mediterranean and yes. all that, uh, the climate being very well suited to growing grapes. Um, now, from what I could find in my research uh, on this, um, definitely I did so do some reading online, uh, mostly just to, for a quick glance, the Wikipedia articles are helpful. And uh, also what I can deduce from my own experience, this makes, it, makes sense if I, in the way I'm going to break it down. There are probably three main views held by Christians today, or at least we can put people in three separate camps. Um, All right. Moderationism, I think that's the most common view. Um, abstentionism, and then prohibitionism. Now, moderationism is the view that alcohol is allowed for the Christian and can be consumed in moderation, as Scripture condemns drunkenness, i.e. the... Um, excessive consumption of alcohol but not wine in and of itself all right so yeah i think from what the bible says that that, that can be argued uh, the abstentionist would agree with the moderationist as to what scripture says about alcohol but due to the various warnings uh, in scripture and considering the destructive effects societally etc that alcohol can have it is better to abstain and not partake at all that's the abstentionist view okay um, now the prohibitionist view goes a step further and calls uh, the consumption of alcohol itself to be sinful uh, and therefore prohibited for Christians um, completely and this view is the most historically recent of the view in my opinion and is commonly associated with the temperance movement uh, which played a big part in leading to the passing of the 18th Amendment of the United States Constitution, for example, which led okay. to the legal prohibition of alcohol, uh, which lasted, uh, I think, from 1990 until 1933, uh, when it was repealed by the 21st Amendment of the United States Constitution for some interesting legal history of the United States. Uh, now, the Wikipedia entries on Christian views on alcohol and on prohibition were helpful to me here uh, uh, to get a general idea of the various views and the, as well as the history of prohibition itself. Um, most people would always warn you about Wikipedia not being yeah. the most accurate source on all things, but you get a general idea of historical things, especially non-controversial or somewhat not, although this is, can be a controversial issue. Not yeah. politically controversial these days. Prohibition maybe was politically controversial earlier in the 20th century, but it's not a controversial issue now. Now, 
Yeah, so that's the background I could glean from some research and a little bit of thinking about my own experience, etc. Okay, well, thanks for sharing uh, that historical background information with us. Uh, it clearly didn't work because it was repealed and you had people called moonshiners, people who uh, would secretly brew alcohol at night and um, they would hide it in all sorts of uh, clever ways, like hiding it, hiding bottles under clothing and selling it that way. Um, I even saw a picture, an old black and white photo of uh, police officers uh, that found alcohol uh, hidden inside inside a timber uh, or a, a truck that was carrying uh, timber or planks of wood. So. I'm guessing they probably smelled it. There's something off about that uh, that uh, vehicle and its cargo. So, yeah, people have really gone to extremes in either direction. I'm, I'm sure we've both encountered this at some or the other point. Uh, so, uh, would you like to share about how you grew up and uh, some experiences that you've had uh, concerning alcohol? Yeah, I don't want to start with this. Hello, my name is Mornay and I am a... <laughs> because I'm not... Uh, hello, my name is Mornay. I'm a prohibitionist or abstentionist. <laughs> so I was raised uh, pretty much a prohibitionist or very strongly abstentionist. Um, okay. We never had alcohol in the house and it was never offered to guests either. Uh, people who claimed to be Christians and drank alcohol were either treated with a modicum of suspicion or at the very least, the idea was that eventually they will stop drinking alcohol as they grow in sanctification. Mm. Now, for clarification, my parents don't have this view anymore um, and are simply abstentionist now as far as I know. Um, personally, my views changed more and more when I became a pharmacist. Um, as I studied pharmacy and I learned the concept of uh, and this is, shouldn't be taken as a biblical truth or a universal truth yeah. here, but the concept, it's a general idea of everything is a poison and nothing is a poison. Rather, it's the dose that makes the poison. This is a Renaissance era um, for toxicology principle, really. And okay. I started to look at the dose. I started to look at the quantity, considering also that even the strongest prohibitionist may inadvertently consume alcohol um, in his food or drink um, and especially considering before we pasteurized everything um, yeah fruit juice would have fermented at least somewhat uh, even if you pressed it today and you drink it the next day some fermentation and some alcohol would be present because the yeast that causes the fermentation is everywhere uh, in our environments um, it lives on the leaves of plants on on the fruit skin etc that's why the skins are also important for winemaking because that is where the yeast is found. If they don't artificially add yeast, well, they, these days they do, but in the ancient times, they didn't artificially add cultured yeast to wine. They um, just uh, crushed the must and then it fermented by itself. So I see. also studying scripture without reading it through a prohibitionist lens helped me to gain a more nuanced understanding of alcohol. And my current views are somewhere between abstentionist and moderationist, as I avoid the drinking of alcoholic beverages generally for myself. But realistically, alcohol is everywhere around us. And as I've mentioned, and found even in medicines too. So we may even consume some alcohol without knowing it or without thinking about 
Right, or you can right. choose some medicine or whatever. Now, I still believe it tends to be healthier and more prudent to avoid alcohol. Uh, uh, but like when studying scripture, context matters. And yes, many, many people enjoy a glass of wine with a meal, and that is a wonderful example of moderation. Um, on the other hand, the excess and drunkenness that happens at some social gatherings and at places like bars and nightclubs is not something I want to be associated with as a Christian. No, no, definitely. It's distasteful when people cross that line. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing your experience. So, as for mine, um, I was raised in what I could call a moderationist household, but my parents almost never drank alcohol. It was basically limited to social events. Uh, and if we did have alcohol in the house, it was for guests or for medicinal reasons, really. Um, as a child, I remember having a fear of alcohol. Okay, That was put in me by seeing things like accidents reported in the news uh, and, and the cause behind it, hearing of people dying in those accidents and just knowing that alcohol was involved and it's quite a long time ago but i it might have there might have even been people we know my family knew involved in such accidents so i was that shocked me and i was also warned about getting drunk as well and as i became older and still as an, an unbeliever a very moralistic person it actually became more of a point of pride that i was a a teetotaler and and i was better than others um yeah thinking i was better than others now when i became a christian i was a member of a very conservative church and i'm not knocking theological conservatism i am myself a, a very uh, conservative christian my theology is conservative um, but in this church, uh, there were interpretations of scripture and arguments against alcohol that were very convincing, especially if you're uh, a young believer and you don't know much. So I knew, of course, that I was right to be a Christian. You're supposed to believe and be born again, as scripture commands us. And now, in this uh, very conservative church, I knew I had a case against alcohol, what I thought was a case against alcohol, and uh, I became very vocal about it, and <laughs> I think I made a good few enemies this way by always condemning alcohol consumption. So, since then, as I've become more biblically literate and know how to work with the languages and so on, I, or at least have a better um, grip on working with the languages, I've since changed from a prohibitionist to an abstentionist. Now, it, it's still a bit odd for me to see people drinking alcohol at a social gathering, but I can still... Uh, Tolerate it if they do not get drunk. Now, uh, as for myself personally, I never developed a taste for alcohol, and I would rather not. I can see a liquor ad, for example, and it will go right over my head. At the most, it will remind me of a, uh, a soft drink or something, and I'll think, I wonder if it tastes similar to that or how that 
tastes with a soft drink, you know, but then it's, it's, the thought is gone, you know, it doesn't bother me anymore. So, um, yeah, I would rather not get into drinking alcohol because, uh, any man can fall and with a taste for alcohol, it, it could happen to me. So I see it this way, the sight of a drunkard that is stumbling all over the place, you know, into traffic and whatnot, and has lost control of their bodily functions and stinks. It's not a pretty sight or spell. So my first thought in such cases is not that I'm better than him, but rather that could be me. I don't want that. But still, I will not condemn someone for drinking it occasionally and in moderation. That's where I stand. So I think now that we've gone through these scriptures, gone through the original language words and our own backgrounds and experiences, um, I think we should uh, take a look at some takeaways. What can we get from the study? Well, um, I'll start and I'll say, biblically speaking, it's wrong to abuse your Christian liberty to the detriment of your fellow Christian. For example, yeah. Yeah, if someone struggles with alcohol, uh, has a history of alcohol abuse or maybe alcoholism, and you consume it in their presence without considering them, then it's obviously wrong. Yeah. Uh, Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is very helpful here. Although the text deals specifically with meat sacrificed to idols, yeah. the principle of Christian liberty and not abusing that liberty applies here. So, yeah. Correct. Correct. Um, Well, my takeaway from this would be learning to love the brother or sister that is different from me. And just realizing as well that the universe does not revolve around me and I cannot have my own way all the time. You know, um, if those uh, Christian brethren of mine do drink alcohol... You know, I would much rather just fellowship with those brethren and upbuild them on our most holy faith rather than fight with them for having an alcoholic beverage and staying perfectly in control of themselves. You know, and I have to say, I have made some dear Christian friends who do drink in moderation. And you know what? They are mature enough in the faith to accept my position and uh, to not create awkwardness over the matter we can sit at the same table or around the same fire and have our respective drinks i'll have my iced tea they can have their um iced tea and something to make it a bit stronger whatever they prefer (laughs) yeah it's um another quick point also that it's wrong to be hypocritical and have a self-righteous attitude regarding your position on abstaining or not abstaining from alcohol. That's sort of what you've pointed out as well. Right. So that was really an interesting discussion on the topic. I Indeed. I, I think it's helpful to be balanced in your view here and uh, scripturally informed, not dying on a hill that scripture doesn't require you to die on. Basically. Yes. Um, and... So, this, I think that concludes our position here. Maybe it, it may not satisfy everyone completely that we never hard and fast exact position, but um, yeah. uh, at least we are sober in our discussion. 
<laughs> and um, uh, that brings us to uh, the next segment, uh, which is the cringeometer. And as much as we tried, we were stumped to find a cringeometer entry that is about alcohol. Yeah. Uh, which is hard, hard to imagine because there are so many cringy things about drunkenness, for example. But I had another idea. All right. I think it's particularly cringeworthy. So I'm going to ask you a question, Kurt. Okay. Uh, have you ever heard of someone talk about pleading the blood of Jesus over something? I have, actually. In the specific context, one of my former pastors would use it as a way of um, combating temptation and sin. So he meant it in the sense of sanctification or a practical holiness, if I understood him correctly. Now, at the time, I didn't know of a scriptural teaching specifically referring to doing this. Okay. Excuse me, I just had a drink of water. Now, I have heard this... this water, though. <laughs> it is water. <laughs> I need to stay sober for our discussion, Good. <laughs> I've... I've heard this phrase about pleading the blood of Jesus in the context of people using it as a safeguard against crime, for example. Okay. For example, they plead the blood of Jesus over your house so that no one breaks in, etc. when they pray. Or possibly over a vehicle before a journey to guarantee a safe trip, or I don't know whether it guarantees a safe trip or whether they view it like that, but that's the idea you get. And it really smells of superstition to me, and... There's not one biblical reference where anyone does this, let alone any instruction even to do so. Now, I did some research here as well, again, and the gotquestions.com article handles this issue very thoroughly, I think. And from it, I learned that some argue that pleading the Jesus' blood is derived from how the Israelites applied the blood of the Passover lamb with the 10th plague. Now, if that is the case, poor hermeneutics is at play. And since there's no distinction between descriptive and prescriptive elements of scripture and a very broad application of a very specific event where God killed the firstborn of Egypt. So, yeah, it's it's very cringeworthy. And I, I always want to ask someone, I get this urge, you know, why do you do this? Why do you pray this way? Why do you plead the blood of Jesus over something? Yeah, well, I have to say, this is so superstitious and cringy. I can hear Stephen Wonder singing superstition in the background. And I'm wearing serious 80s clothing now as well while I play a synthesizer with him. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, your, your your imagination is vivid, Kurt. Um, it, oh, thank you. I do try. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, it, it's really... I think it's important. It's, it shows a lack of uh, being biblical in how you pray as well. Yeah. Uh, since uh, we couldn't even find a single, it's not just a misapplication of an event, which it could be in a sense, but stretching even that quite a bit. It clearly is not found in Scripture, any instruction to plead the blood of Jesus over something. Like yeah. Jesus died so your house doesn't get break, <laughs> broken into it. It's really... Uh, yeah, it's unbiblical, and I, I, if you are someone who has heard that and maybe, without even thinking about it, prays that way, reconsider it. That's what I would ask. Consider yes. 
why you are doing something, why you are saying certain words in your prayers or in your, you know, when you plead the blood of Jesus over something. There are many examples like this where people don't necessarily think what they are saying. And so this is not to make you feel bad if you may have been misinformed, but this does cringe us because we our focus is on being biblically literate in this and being uh, and not doing things just because you saw a guy on TV pray, pray like that or hear a guy yeah. on TV pray like that or some pastor even. No, be biblical in how you approach any topic. Um, that is our desire and the goal of this podcast. Absolutely. We yeah. aim to be biblical. Yes, and uh, let those chips fall where, where they may. Um, so, uh, thanks for an interesting discussion as always, Kurt. Um, uh, I really think the alcohol topic as uh, something that I, I, I desire to discuss it because of my history as being very much a prohibitionist slash abstentionist and then moving away from that and it's been similar. Um, so, what are we going to talk about next week? Well, next week we'll be talking about church attendance and whether it's still relevant or not and who decides if it is relevant. Is being a Lone Ranger Christian biblical? Join us and find out. Uh, thanks, Kit. Now, uh, before uh, we sign off, um, I just want to also mention again that our opening and closing music track is Holy uh, Land by Kevin McLeod. I hope our audience and you yourself could as well enjoy a pleasant week and until next time. Thank you very much to you as well. Goodbye everyone. All right, goodbye.